The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Alliance Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. As always, you got Peanut and Pootie in Garage Mahal kicking it old school. Kicking it old school? What? I don't know. It's been two years. I feel like it's an old thing now that oh, we okay. do this. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. I you thought know? you meant like we were wearing like Nike high tops and, you know, backwards fluorescent hats from the 90s, <laughs> fanny packs. Well, see, I, I grew up in the 80s, so I would be wearing yes, my you pants. Did, old man. <laughs> House of Pain is breaking down on the radio. You were born in the 70s. Get out of here. 79. That's barely, <laughs> that is barely the, like, I do it. You know what the funny thing is? You're technically a millennial. I know. And I'm Generation baby. X. I know. So there's that. We are separated by an entire generation. <laughs> we are generations. Old, old man. We are generations. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Yep. Happy to be here. Uh, it's snowing outside. Baby's cold out there. Glad Baby to be in <laughs> the warm garage Mahal. <laughs> see, this this place is, has better like circulation and airflow than my house. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's very comfortable here. At my house, I'd be wearing a couple layers. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I should move in. Dave, can I move in? He nodded. He said no. He said no. He said I don't know no. if you're going to hear that. Anyway, we're the Rebels. We're glad you're with us for episode 102. That's craziness. I like how we're remembering to to list the number, even though we didn't leading up to and including number one hundred. <laughs> We've never but. mentioned it before, ever before yeah. until these two episodes. Yeah, there you go. Eh, it's because I'm aware of the Whatever. number at the moment. It's true. It's true. So. Oh, I have a surprise for you. So, are you, first of all, are you enjoying this eggnog provided by um, our sound guy, Dave? I, I am a little bit. I'm not a huge eggnog fan. I would well, take a sip and tell me what you think. So I thought it'd be fun to get your live reaction here because Pootie has like, a bit of a phobia um, concerning milk products. This this expired on January 1st. No, buddy. Come on, you're killing me. That's nine days ago. Uh, is it nine days ago? Yeah. When we're recording, it's eight, nine days. It's yeah, a whole yeah. bunch of days. January just saying, 1st. Just saying. Yeah. I literally, that's the last sip I'm going to have of it. I know. I've never trusted you again. So, <laughs> so Dave offered this to me and he said, it is a little expired. And I said, let's pour, let's pour some for Chris then. So for those of you <laughs> Those of you who don't know, Chris has a horrible phobia about due dates. Like anything, if if the food ha- is even close to its due date, I've seen you watch. I've seen you throw milk out that's like three days before expiration. I, I won't drink. I won't drink it if it's three. Day, like the fourth day before, like yeah. before the best before, I'm okay. But three days before, there's no way. Yeah. Forget it. So it's you just drank go. half a glass of eggnog <laughs> that, that expired <laughs> over a week ago. How do you feel? Like queasy, do you feel okay? You're well, gonna to live. Be, to be honest, I felt fine until you said it, and now I feel like I might be sick. 
might have escaped. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. It was just too much. It was too easy. It was can too I, easy. Can I point out, this is the second time that I recall. You've done this to me multiple times, but like, this is the second bad one you've done. The other one, remember the first time we had sushi? Oh, I yeah. never had sushi, so I pre-ate because, you know, that's what you do. Yeah. And we went to sushi and I have a, there's, there's like three, th- like two things I'm I actually. I feel like there's a lot. You say there's only two, but I feel like I've, I feel like most have come up in this podcast. Probably. Spiders is another one that yeah. I'm not. And the first time we went to have sushi. We actually like, went to a place that <laughs> would give you spider sushi. Yeah. So he made me eat spiders and told what me. What did I tell you it was? Frog legs. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you believe that. Well, it's all yeah. breaded, right? Yeah, like yeah, I can't yeah, tell. Yeah. And then as I'm eating it, you told me as like I was swallowing what, what I was eating. And that was terrible. That traumatized me a lot. Yeah. I am yeah. sorry. I didn't realize yeah, I did this to you as much as I do. You do. You do. Yeah. But I still trust you. Thank you. I like, appreciate I that. I still trust you sometimes. Cheers? No, no, I'm never drinking <laughs> yeah, okay. that again. Right. The worst part is I drank most of my water, too. Oh, <laughs> man. You're killing me. All right. Nine so, days. So that was just a little bit of that. Yeah, Dave was in on it, FYI. Um, okay, so that's just a little bit of fun before we jump into uh, Rebel News. But before we do that, I just want to say uh, this is the Rebel Podcast. You're Hopefully, you're listening to us on a Wednesday when we dropped. Uh, but we also have several other podcasts that are part of the network. Um, uh, we have uh, the Awakening Reformation Podcast that drops on Mondays. No, sorry, Tuesdays. Fathers of Faith for Covenant Kids, which is a podcast uh, by the Van Bremer family for your family, including your kids, drops on Mondays. And then there's us, the Rebel Podcast, and there's uh, another podcast soon to be joining. So keep an eye on the main feed. And uh, there's uh, there's something in the works from uh, uh, BM, her good old buddy Ben Emery, and uh, that's something you can look forward to. Uh, Rebel News. So I have uh, I have this interesting article here. Um, I'm, I'm just going to read this to you. <clears throat> uh, after interviewing 17 families whose adolescent daughters identify as transgender, Abigail Schreer wrote an op-ed column for the Wall Street Journal on Sunday entitled, When Your Daughter Defies Biology. Uh, so you can find that on the Wall Street Journal uh, website in, uh, in digital form. She believes that the medical community is far too unconditionally affirmative in its treatment of so-called rapid-onset gender dysphoria. So uh, unlike traditional gender dysphoria, uh, which, which, by the way, was a mental illness up until a couple of years ago when the whole transgenderism stuff took off. Um, so unlike traditional gender dysphoria, which prompts children to conclude that they are born the wrong sex, rapid onset gender dysphoria is a, quote, social contagion that comes on suddenly in adolescence, afflicting teens who'd never exhibited any confusion about their sex. So basically what this is saying is that the culture itself has created an environment where now because celebrities are so affirming of transgender culture and they're seeing Bruce Jenner winning, you know, female of the year and all this kind of stuff. Great year, by the way. 2018 was a great year for men, right? Like we, we won some gold. Uh, we we <laughs> won some gold medals in the Olympics we, under the women's section. We crushed we, water polo. We, we crushed water polo. <laughs> we, uh, you know, on the world stage in terms of rugby and stuff like that, we won a whole, like like men are cleaning up on the, on the women's uh, sports circuit. And, uh, we had several contestants in, in the Miss Universe pageant, and we won Woman of the Year. So 2018, feminism aside, 2018 was a good year for men. So go men. Go men. Okay. 
Um, back to this. <laughs> back to this. So th- um, what this is essentially saying is that there's this new thing they're calling rapid onset gender dysphoria, which basically means that there are young people who are caught up in the culture of transgenderism that's being shoved down their throat by media, by social media, by movies, by Hollywood celebrities. And it's making teens who have never exhibited any confusion about their sex suddenly question things. Okay. So unlike other social contagions, such as cutting and bulimia, rapid onset gender dysphoria gets, quote, full support from the medical community instead of treatment such as, con- as such contagions deserve. Clinics routinely give girls testosterone with very few questions asked. In 2016, the American College of Pediatricians warned educators and legislators that, quote, a life of chemical and surgical impersonation of the opposite sex is dangerous for children, end quote. But their warning has largely gone unheeded. Um, so what's interesting about this whole article is, is basically this, um, this, this woman, Abigail Schreer got just lambasted for it. Like, um, she, I mean, she's getting dragged over the coals in media and social media for this, but essentially what she's all she's saying, she's not even against transgenderism. All she's saying is that this new phenomenon of, of young people who have never questioned their sexuality being given, um, like life altering, um, hormones very, very quickly in the process is doing some damage. That's all she's, that's all she said. And she's getting dragged through the coals for this. So it's just interesting that, um, we live in a culture now that is that you it's not even allowing medical professionals to give medical advice that's like like this is the equivalent of me going to the doctor and him saying you have cancer you need radiation treatment and i say i disagree i don't right like and 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 i'm going to now now litigate against you because you've told me that i have cancer i don't identify as a as a as a cancer patient and you telling me that i have cancer is oppressing me like that, you know what I mean? So like we, we're taking the entire um, fields of study away from the professionals and giving jurisdiction of them over to fanatics. Yeah, it's it, it's not shocking. We've been doing like like when we see this, I'm not I'm not shocked that this lady's being torn apart for this. Right. Uh, I'm not shocked that this is happening. We've been doing this for even since my generation, as we talked about earlier, um, well, think about it. We do this with cigarettes. Way back then. We like oh, people yeah. like, yeah, yeah, we yeah, know that the outcome of cigarettes is cancer is right. lung cancer, but yet people still willfully like today, people still buy them. Like it's not just the older generations that are doing it. It's still young people buying cigarettes and smoking them, even though we know the outcome, this is just the reverse of that. The, pro- the like, problem is, is, is that you know, with cigarettes, just like the, okay, actually it is, that is a good analogy. I was about to say that wasn't a good analogy, but it is a good analogy because early on, if you look at old like camel ads, it talked about, um, cigarettes being good for you. It actually talked about the health benefits of smoking. And so that is a good, good example because it, um, you know, but the difference is, is it allowed the actual science to begin to speak. I don't see a way in which, you know, uh, apart from like the divine work of God by the the spreading of the gospel, I don't see a way in which um, the gag comes off of the medical professionals to talk about the dangers of this. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, exactly. Without, without divine, almost without divine intervention in these areas, we're going to, we're going to need to see 
a generation of these people who have been giving these drugs grow up and start coming out with all the stories like, like we've seen with concussions in sports and and other things where we get to the point where we now see the ramifications of what we've done 50 years from now. Cause we can't really see it yet because this only started about five years ago. Right. Um, And interestingly, the, the small sample size that we do have uh, actually shows that um, the suicide rate for transgendered individuals, which is alarming higher than any other subgroup in in human history. Um, The only one that's even close is Jews under Nazi Germany. In Nazi Germany, um, it's like forty percent or something crazy like that. But what's interesting is that the number actually goes up after affirmation surgery. So, like you know, those who take hormones and those who have gender reassignment surgery um, are actually more prone to killing themselves. And and so the more data we have to show that, and that there's actually mass amounts of remorse and um, you know guilt and and all that kind of stuff associated with it, which they say is culturally brought on. Um, but the, like you said, the more testimonies that we see of people who come out and say, you know, living against you know my biological sex has done irreversible damage to me. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. If anybody knows of a good like person like. Christian person who's gone through that and has like is speaking about it. We would love to talk to them. Yeah. Rosaria Butterfield's the only one that I know of now. She, she didn't struggle with transgenderism. Um, but I mean, she was in a lesbian relationship and she has that hole and yeah. Well, um, Jackie, Jackie Hilperi, you said right, this, was, similar, but I was, I'm, I'm specifically thinking of yeah, anybody yeah. who's been transgender. I don't, I don't know. I don't yeah. know if there is, if there is. So yeah, let um, us know. Cause it, it, it's certainly, I mean, certainly in our, even in, in, in the area in which our actual church is ministering, like let's, let's not, not, talking about the reach of the rebels right now but just our own church you know this is this is a, a big thing in the the school district that we live in and all that kind of stuff this is it, it's 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 huge here i imagine it is everywhere but we're i mean we're seeing the ramifications of this in our local schools and a lot of our um you know youth uh outreaches and stuff like that are are tar- targeting and, and talking uh you know students who are really struggling with this and stuff and see it so anyway interesting article i'd encourage you to go on and uh did you have anything for Rebel News? No, that or was pretty heavy. jump right Let's into the episode, go. yeah. So um, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about um, the doctrine of hell. So it's not going to get any later. <laughs> Fire and brimstone! Hey, it's Dave, the tech guy here. Happy New Year from all of us at Rebel Alliance Media. The Rebels have lots of new ideas lined up for 2019, and most of them are great. So tell your friends about us. Send them a link to rebelalliancemedia.com. Tell them they need to be listening every week. You can do even more to help the Rebels by clicking the donate button on our website. You can interact with the Rebels on Facebook, Twitter, or email. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back. And uh, so this episode, along with last week and and potentially um, the next couple of weeks, we are looking at um, some of the topics that we came up with uh, several months ago, weeks ago, when we were looking at doctrines that the church has um, shied away from. So kind of foundational things that are, uh, are, are 
core doctrinal pieces of, of Orthodox Christianity that the church is now starting to let go of. Last week, we looked at biblical inerrancy. We talked a little bit about that and authority and sufficiency. Uh, this week, we're looking at the doctrine of hell. As we look at the, the Christian landscape, we see more and more people kind of questioning the doctrine of hell. And I mean, it didn't all start here, but certainly in terms of, you know, a catalyst for people to start um, sharing the views that they otherwise wouldn't have gone public with. I think, you know, Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, really kind of brought this conversation to the forefront again, because there were, Rob Bell had a lot of support when he came out with that book. Um, and he was a very, very popular teacher, pastor. Um, and I, 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 did use air quotes for pastor there. You can't see because this is uh, audio, but, uh, and so Rob this Bell wrote radio. this book, uh, uh, Love Wins. And that really brought, so, and I'm very thankful, guys like Francis Chan, other kind of mainstream pastors who came with rebuttals to him with uh, his book, I think it was called Heaven or, or Hell Erased, Erasing Hell or something like that. Um, and so, you know, this conversation has been brought to the forefront, but um, so there are a, a number of ways that Christians get around the traditional view of hell, uh, but that's what we want to talk about today. Yeah, basically the idea, this this idea kind of sparked, obviously when we were talking about doctrines that the church has softened on over the time, but this one specifically stuck out because this is one that everybody's kind of comfortable with. Everybody's sort of comfortable with us not talking about hell. Nobody really wants to, because let's be, let's be honest, it's not comfortable to talk about the wrath of God. It's not comfor- comfortable to talk about our friends and family who aren't saved suffering eternally. And so some heresies have popped up in the church. You mentioned one with uh, Rob Bell, Universal Salvation. And there's some other ones that have popped up over the years that some even some prominent church members have exposed. Yeah. There was a time when John Stott flirted with annihilationism. That, that's the that's yeah. the one I the one yeah. I was thinking of. I wasn't going to name his name, but no. um, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. He's I think he's dead anyway, right? Oh yeah, that's long terrible. dead. Long dead. Is it long? I don't know. Anyway, but like there, this is a this is a doctrine where people have lost what it, what this doctrine means and why this matters and why this matters. Simply put, why we're why we want to talk about it and we want to encourage you guys to have a proper understanding of the of this doctrine is because the church when when we start taking this doctrine out of our out of our preaching, out of our pulpits, out of our conversations and daily lives, we lose the urgency. Right. And the urgency is that we live in a world where there is one hope, and that hope is Jesus Christ. And only the people with Jesus Christ will get to see him in eternity. Everyone else will be separated from him for eternity, which the Bible very clearly, as we discussed last week, is inerrant and perfect, very clearly um, points out is an eternal state state of eternal punishment, which means for those of us who are in Christ, great news. For those of us who aren't in Christ or those of us who don't know who that is, that means that's very, very bad news. And when we take the doctrine of hell away, we lose the urgency to to share the message of salvation. Right. Because, you know what? You haven't really lost anything if it's a temporary state. But when it's eternal, it's it's big time game. It's big time serious, and we don't want to be people who are standing on the on the corner shouting fire and brimstone all day long. That's obviously not not the case. But fire and brimstone is part of this, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um. So uh, I guess to kind of walk through this uh, again, we're not uh, we're not going to be able to do like a systematics on the doctrine of hell in the the time permitted in one podcast. Um, but what I will say is, is um, 
first of all, the first thing to know is that um, the doctrine of hell, even for churches that uh, believe in a traditional orthodox view of hell, um, is sort of like the the uh, you know the embarrassing uncle in the family that nobody wants to talk about or, or acknowledge. Um, there's a whole lot of churches who might believe the right thing about it, but never talk about the the reality of it. And I think that's a problem too. And I, I think you know even the the slipping away from orthodoxy that we're seeing in the church um, has to do with embarrassment over this. And I think the reason that we're embarrassed about hell. I, I think, as I look at it, I think, um, number one, we don't take the holiness of God as seriously as we should. And number two, we don't take the, the horrendousness of sin as seriously as we should. Right. So we live in a culture that that justifies our sin, minimizes our sin. And, and the more we minimize our sin, the more egregious a concept of hell seems. Right. So because my sin isn't that bad. Because, hey, I only got angry with my kids because they were being, you know, little jerks. I, I, you know, I only hit my wife because she wasn't listening to me. I only lost my temper in traffic because the guy in front of me didn't know how to drive, right? So we The other in- ones were hypothetical except for that one, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, uh, um, so we, we're, we live in a culture where we, we're always justifying our own sin. And, and because we can always blame our sin on something or something, someone else, some outside source— the, the horribleness of our sin is, isn't um, acknowledged like it should be. And then number two, the holiness of God, right? So there's been more, like many, many attempts. We live in, in a culture that demonizes the God of Scripture as, you know, homophobic, genocidal, you know, megalomaniac. And so we, we've lost our reverence for the attributes of God and the holiness of God and the perfection of God. And then we've, we've lost our ability to blush over our own sin and be ashamed of our own sin. And those two things combined make the doctrine of hell seem um, unfair because what, you, what do you mean God is going to eternally punish me just for the, the these small little bad things that I can do? And most people would say something along the lines of like, I get that you know hell could exist for somebody like Hitler, but not for me, right? Um, it's because we are so used to justifying our sins. We've lost the gravity of our own sinfulness and we've lost um, reverence for God's holiness. And I think that those two things are what motivates our improper understanding of the doctrine of hell. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting that should be acknowledged is that most of the teaching of hell that we have in the Bible is from Jesus' own lips. By far, the person who, who, who taught the most about hell is Jesus. And so it's interesting because, um, you know, Christians' loyalty to the teaching of Jesus um, seems unwavering. So you'd have a whole lot of people who are even more liberal Christians who would call themselves like red-letter Christians. We, you, you know, those of us who, who believe in the traditional uh, understanding of every, every word of the Bible as God-breathed would attribute it all to Christ. But um, Jesus himself was by far the, the, the most um, uh, avid teacher on the doctrine of hell. And, uh, and I, I don't think a whole lot of people who haven't spent a whole lot of serious time studying the doctrine of hell um, believe or know. Um, the other thing, so th- there are a couple things. So when we use the doctrine, we use the word hell, there are several words in our Bibles that are associated with hell. There's uh, the term Gehenna, 
um, which is uh, it, essentially it's a place that's in the southwest area of Jerusalem, um, and uh, it's it's a, a word d- derived from Aramaic that means fireplace. Um, it's it's there that was a place where pagan kings practiced human sacrifice, according to Second Chronicles twenty eight and I think Jeremiah seven ish. Um, and the New Testament word for Gehenna probably got associated with this idea of destruction by fire. There's also the word Hades, um, which is, uh, occurs in the New Testament uh, about a dozen times, uh, and it corresponds to the Old Testament word Sheol, uh, which is used, it's a Hebrew word, uh, talking about um, sort of the, the place of, of the afterlife. It's just talking about the grave. Um, and, uh, and so those are kind of the, the New Testament words that are associated with it. Um, the, the thing that is worth mentioning is that all of Jesus teaching about hell, and he used the word Gehenna primarily as he was teaching about it, um, all have to do with the eternality. So it talks about these, this place, Gehenna, this place of, of fire, this fireplace, this fire pit, um, as a place where, um, it's, it's described as an unquenchable fire in Matthew three. Um, it's, it's talked about uh, fiery torment in Matthew chapter five and Matthew chapter 18. It's ta- it's, uh, it's described as eternal fire in Matthew 25, eternal punishment in Matthew 25, eternal fire again in Jude seven. Um, and then of course we know the, the uh, allusion to the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20. So all that to say that the, the, the biblical view of the doctrine of hell is that, there's an association with Gehenna, which just means a place of, of eternal burning, right? Gehenna was like this garbage dump that, you know, in, in the desert just never really stopped burning. And so it became associated with this place of, of eternal burning. And so I don't, I don't necessarily think that there's fire in hell. I think that's just a symbol. But the, the, the reality of the teachings of um, the New Testament are that there, it's eternal separation from God eternal separation from the mercy of God. And that means that the only presence of God that is present in hell is his wrath. And so it's not necessarily a place of fire. It's not like the cartoons or the far side, you know, uh, uh, cartoon strips that we see. Um, It's not necessarily a place of hell. It's a place where God's presence is not kind. There's no common grace. There's no mercy. It's just his wrath and it's his wrath eternally. And I think um, the uh, how I, I don't know where you want to go with this. I mean, we can keep kind of talking about where we get the doctrine of hell from, but I think we should talk more about why we should why we should um, believe in the doctrine of hell. And I think that number one, it's because the Bible teaches it, right? Jesus teaches about the uh, the eternality of hell, and uh, but I think that. One of the other reasons that we need to believe what the Bible says about hell is because it makes ser- serious business out of our sin, which makes serious business out of our Savior. And I think that, you know, um, the, the reason, so I get asked the question a lot, you know, a finite temporal human being who makes a temporal sin, why is that deserving of eternal punishment? It's a, it's a one-time sin. Why should that person get uh, punished forever? And um, I've used this analogy before. I don't know if it's on the podcast or, or in a sermon or in answering a question or whatever, but the, the, whenever we do something wrong, the object of our wrongdoing matters as we figure out an appropriate punishment, right? So if you kick a dog, that's a bad thing. 
If you kick, you know, a child, that's a worse thing. If you kick a pregnant woman in the stomach, that's worse than all the other things, right? So like who you're doing the bad thing against matters. And so when we talk about the reason hell and the punishment for sin must be eternal, it's because of the holiness of God. It doesn't have to do with how how small and insignificant the sin is. It has to do with who that insignificant sin is against. And if it's against an infinitely holy God, then it's deserving of infinite punishment. And that's that's how we understand why eternal punishment is necessary against even the smallest of sins. Yeah, I think I think I think he summed it up great there. We um, you have to understand the whole, to understand this doctrine. You have to understand the holiness of God. So, like one. One sin against him is like you're sinning against basically everyone in the, like you basically it's like if you assassinated the president, you know what I mean? So every, every single thing you do is against the highest authority that there is. So right. you've now sinned against the highest authority. There's a reason in, in Samuel when David, when David sins, he doesn't, he doesn't, he isn't really upset that he sinned against Bathsheba. He hasn't, he's not really upset about that. He, he recognizes that he sinned against the Holy God and he repents for that because that's far greater than anything else he's done because he understood the holiness of God, the immense weight that sinning against somebody who's infinitely perfect is against, right? If that makes sense. There's a reason when we think of something as pure and then something, and something corrupts that pure purity, like, you know, you have a freshly snow-covered lawn, and then your dog goes out and pees on it. It makes it, it's wrecked. You know what I mean? It's it's no longer pure because it's infinitely destroyed. Every sin we've committed against an infinitely per- perfect God is a is a mark against us to the most perfect, pure thing that there is in the universe. And once you understand that, you understand why He has to punish that. And the other thing that I think we need to we need to focus on is that we want our God to punish and to be just and to, and to punish sin. We don't want a God who's just like, man, it's okay. Right. You need, you need God to punish that or else he won't punish the Hitlers. He won't punish the, 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 I don't know. I can't think of it. Stalin's, I guess it would be another one of those <laughs> ones that universally everybody knows we hate, but um, there, there's an otherness. We need God to be set apart like that. So that all the things about him that we want to be true, like the fact that he can save us, the fact that he's, working all things out for our good, the infinite eternal joy that will come with when we're in his presence for all time, for all those things to be true. We need that other side of the coin to be true too, that right. he'll punish sin. He will pour out his wrath on those people. And I, and I think another thing to point out with what we said is that we don't know what this looks like in terms of the darkness or fire. All we know is that it's punishment and it's conscience punishment. When we see the story of Lazarus in scripture where he's looking up and crying out, it's giving us a picture of what hell's going to be like when he cries out for just a drop of water to to quench his tongue from the torment that he's in. He's aware of what's happening to him for all time. And I think that that should, as Christians, spark us into action, basically to say, we know what this world needs. Let's not keep it to ourselves. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I think um, there's there's a couple things we can say about hell that I think um, are you know the the Bible affirms these things about hell. Number one, that hell. So we don't like you said we don't know that you know it's fire. The, these are symbols that the Bible uses to describe what is most excruciating. Um, but one thing we do know is that hell is separation from God. 
right? That's that's clear. Um, Jesus says um, in uh, in Matthew chapter five, he talks about uh, or chapter seven he talks about depart from me, uh, you cursed into eternal fire, right? Um, that's uh, uh, or sorry in Matthew twenty five. So. The, uh, if you want to kind of look at the doctrine of hell in its most significance is in Matthew chapter 25. And uh, Jesus talks about um, it being a place where they are cast out of his presence. And that doesn't mean that God's present because God is omnipresent. So that's, there's, there's one of the, uh, the rationales for God is omnipresent. Um, in fact, I think it's Psalm 139 where he's saying, where can I hide from your presence? And he says, you know, if I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down into Sheol, you are there. So God's presence isn't completely absent from hell, but his goodness and his kindness and his mercy are completely absent from hell. So hell is separation from the goodness and kindness of God. And um, I think one other thing that should probably be stated is that you know, those who reject God in this life are continually saying they're, they're trying to get away from the presence of God. And so hell is essentially God saying, okay, right? Like it, this is what it looks like for you to not receive any of my common grace, not to be around any of my goodness, any of my kindness, any of my mercy. So, so number one, we uh, know from Matthew 25 that hell is a state of eternal separation from God. Um, number two, we know that hell is a state of association. In verse 41, it talks about how hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, um, which means, you know, we know people were made for God and hell was made for the devil. Um, but people who die in their sins will spend eternity in hell with the ones who are most unlike God, with Satan. So the the idea is, um, you know, this this ties ties the whole story together, right? The the serpent, the devil, lied to Adam and Eve, said, you you know, you can go the way of God or you can follow me in making up the, my own rules. And so essentially, eternal separation from God means God saying, you go with the one that you've chosen to follow as opposed to follow me. So uh, number one, uh, hell is a state of eternal separation from God's loving kindness. Number two, hell is a state of association, which means you're there um, with with Satan. Um, Number three, hell is a state of punishment. Uh, Matthew 25 verse 41 describes it as a place of fire and of punishment. Um, so the idea here is that the punishment has to fit the crime. We've already talked about that, the eternality of hell. And number four, hell is an everlasting state. Um, in verse 46 of Matthew 25, it talks about eternal punishment, everlasting um, uh, punishment. So those are the things that the Bible affirms about hell. We don't know everything that's associated with it. We just know those things are true, and therefore it's a uh, obviously a, a something that we shy away from teaching. But um, I found these five applications, and this is from Paul Tripp, five applications uh, that the doctrine of hell should um, produce. So number one, the doctrine of hell should produce grief. Uh, And then he goes on to say, it should break your heart that there are those living with and around you that are marching towards a God-separated eternal punishment. You cannot celebrate the reality of heaven without grieving over the reality of hell. Does your heart grieve over those who are perishing? Number two, the doctrine of hell should produce zeal. He goes on to say, if the doctrine of hell produces grief, it must also produce zeal to share the gospel of rescuing grace to those who are perishing. Day after day, you brush shoulders with people marching towards their doom, and you've been sovereignly positioned by God to brush shoulders with them. Is your heart zealous to share the gospel with them? 
Number three, the doctrine of hell should produce thankfulness. You should never take pleasure in the death of wicked people, but you should be thankful that the final justice is coming. Is your heart broken by the injustice that occurs every day in our world? Does your heart cry out, Lord, how long until the pain of this world is no more? Number four, the doctrine of hell should produce celebration. You should daily celebrate the fact that you're not marching towards hell, but that celebration should not be self-righteous or proud. You could never behave your way out of hell. It's only by the grace of God that you became aware of your sin, desire to live a righteous life, and have the ability to make God-glorifying moral decisions. And finally, number five, the doctrine of hell should produce prioritization. Um, Eternity reminds us of what is truly important to us in this life. When you meditate on the reality of heaven and hell, you will rearrange your value system. A believer who meditates daily on the doctrine of hell will invest much more time and energy into the kingdom of God than the kingdom of self. So I think those are kind of five application points by Paul Tripp that are really helpful um, and uh, and kind of highlight the importance of why we ought to believe in the traditional view of hell. Yeah, I think that's I think that's great. What um, why don't we walk, take a little bit of time because some of the objections that we get about the doctrine of hell would be like, well, obviously we've already handled the one about unfairness. Yep. Um, we've already talked about that. What are some of the other like inside the church now? If we're if we're for keeping it in-house, what would be some of the other objections? So the first one, I think the big one that comes up all the time is, is called annihilationism. Yeah. Um, and basically, so people who don't know, you might know, you might not. Um, simply, this is just the belief that after final judgment, some human beings and all fallen angels will be totally destroyed. So after the final judgment, we'll st- the people who aren't in Christ will just cease to exist. So they'll be punished by the fact that they are just gone. Right. Um, I think I think we've walked through a ton of verses where already where Jesus has said like this is eternal. <laughs> this state is an per- is well, punished for of well, eternal. and I think so. Here's the thing. Here's one of the reasons annihilationism can't be right because because in Matthew That's chapter two, blunt, I love yeah, because in Matthew uh, twenty five verse forty six it says um, uh, it talks about those who will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous on to eternal life. So. That word, which is sometimes translated everlasting and sometimes uh, translated eternal, it's uh, aneos, which comes from the uh, the Greek word aeon, which just means uh, a period of time. And so an annihilationist would argue that, that that amount of time, that aeon, that period of time, might not be eternal, but it might. So we, we translate it eternal, but it really just means a, a period of time. The problem is, is that Jesus was very specific. He didn't just say they'll go on to a period of suffering. He says they'll go on to an, a, a period, an aeon of punishment and the righteous to an aeon of life. So the aeon, right, the, the amount of time, the aeon of punishment is equal to but contradictory to the aeon of the righteous. So if we believe that Jesus actually gives eternal life, eternal life, like everlasting life, forever kind of life, then we have to contrast that and realize that what Jesus is saying is that just as eternal as the eternal life that's found in Jesus is the eternal punishment that's found outside of Jesus. So you can't get around the eternality of the punishment unless you are willing to concede the eternality of life in Christ. Mm. So that's, that's I, I think that's the strongest argument for why annihilationism can't be true. But I also think there's, I mean, there are some other things. I'll just, I feel like you just crushed the ball. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just throw out a couple things. There's a couple, um, I don't know the exact references, but you can look them up. It's in Jude, um, uh, the book of Jude in Matthew chapter 8. 
um, and in, I think, Luke 16, um, and then it's also in Thessalonians, I think, chapter 1, but um, what I would call the intrinsic eternality of the soul, um, that God talks about the everlasting nature of the soul, that it lasts forever. Yeah, I have the stuff that... Thessalonians and the Jude oh, one go. up if you want me to read them. Yeah, go for it. So 2 Thessalonians 1 9, 1 9 says, They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shed out from the presence of the Lord and from his glory of his might. That, that was the, what was that, the verse? 19? Uh, no, there's was uh, 2 Thessalonians 1 9. Yeah. Um, and then right. Jude 1 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns, towns gave them up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example for those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Right. And so um, what that's talking about is the eternal nature of the souls that are being punished, right? So if you look again, if you look at the Greek grammar there, the eternality is not attached merely to the punishment, but of the soul itself. So what it's talking about is that, you know, souls will exist forever, either in eternal life or eternal damnation. And uh, and so... Um, so yeah, so there's the, the the direct words from Jesus in Matthew 25 verse 46 about um, the the everlasting punishment equaling the everlasting life, and then there's these those verses and the other ones that I listed about the eternality of the soul, and so you can't get around those things, and so then you look at um, you look at uh, some of the the kind of cherry picked verses. So an annihilationist will use. Um, don't don't be afraid of when Jesus says uh, don't be don't fear that who can kill the body but fear the one who can kill the body and the soul in hell. Um, so they say, see, destroy, destroy. It's not about everlasting. It's about just destroy. But it, interestingly, the destruction there. If you look, if you look at the prefix in the Greek, it's talking about eternal destruction. So it's not talking about finite destruction, meaning a one-off, but it's talking about eternal destruction, just like the other verses that we read there. So it all fits together in there, and you can't cherry pick those verses. You have to you have to take all these things uh, together. So yeah, the one I one I get all the time, well, all the time, but like the one that I've heard a lot often of na- is, annihilationists <laughs> yeah. in your life, Chris. <laughs> There's tons of tons of they're rampant. Annihilationists uh, got you down. <laughs> Sorry, go on. That's so good. He's in Revelation twenty one think eight where it's like basically it talks about when they're thrown into the fire that this is the second death right and so like people are take that that phrase the second death to mean well that means it's the same thing that happens here we just yeah. cease to exist and it's like well so when you die sorry. so no, no i'll, I'll tell you exactly no i'll tell you exactly how you get around that you yeah. go to john chapter five because so <laughs> who wrote the book of revelation john. john right and so in john when he's referring to the first death and the second death um he's using his own teaching. So he's referring back to his own teaching. He knows his gospel has gone far and wide at this point. So he writes the book of Revelation referring to the first death, the second death, the uh, first life and the second life, or the first resurrection, the second resurrection. So John chapter five is where John is talking about what he means by first death, second death, first resurrection, second uh, resurrection. And essentially his teaching in John chapter five is that the first resurrection is referring to the resurrection of the soul, right? eternal life being given to the soul, this conversion. And then the second life is the bodily resurrection at the end of human history. Then he talks about how the first death is the body's death, which corresponds to the second life. And then the second death corresponds to the first resurrection. 
see what I'm saying? So he, he does that contrasting in John chapter five. So his teaching, his own teaching teaches that the second death is the spiritual death, which he in John five talks about as eternal or everlasting. So it's an everlasting death, not uh, a a one-off destruction death. So all you have to do is you you read the Bible (laughs) and right. And again, so this isn't like everything else. Don't go to the Bible looking for the answers you want to give. Go to the Bible and allow the Bible to shape your mind and shape your thinking. And if you do that, there's no way you can read the Bible in its entirety and come away with annihilationism or universal salvation, right? Universal salvation is, 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 is straight up heresy that talks about how hell is some sort of refining fire where everybody comes out of hell. And both the verses for annihilationism and the verses for um, the traditional view of hell just blow um, universalism out of the water. And um, the, the most prominent, I'll just say this, because I have a couple um, people in my life who uh, ascribe universal salvation and, uh, and basically their argument to me is, um, is there anybody that you know who's died outside of a uh, relationship with Christ and wouldn't you want them to be in heaven if they could? And when you say yes to that, then they say, do you think you are more merciful than God? And that's their argument. So there's not even really a, much of a biblical argument. There's, there's some verses about, uh, you know, fire being a refining fire and coming through and then being purified and all that kind of stuff, which is just taking verses out of context. Any, any first year seminary hermeneutic student will be able to blow those uh, out of the water. Uh, but this, this mercy one, again, not a biblical argument. So that's your first indication that this is a wrong theology. But, this, but the, the second thing about that is Romans 9 answers this question perfectly, right? And Romans 9 essentially says, um, do you think that it's unfair? And, and the answer is, in order to display his justice, God needed, must, he, he prepared beforehand vessels for destruction to display his justice and his wrath. So the, the whole point here is that, um, no, I'm not more merciful than God, because if I was God, I would destroy everybody <laughs> because the, it, we, shouldn't be, we shouldn't be shocked and dismayed that God would send some to hell. We should be shocked and dismayed that God saved anyone and sent his own son as the substitutionary death for those that rebelled against God. So, uh, yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> just read Romans 9 and, and that'll answer your question about whether or not you're more merciful than God. The answer is no. Um, you're described in Romans chapter three, no one's good, no, not one. That means not you. No one seeks for God. No one understands. You're violent. You're, you know, all that stuff. Well, and I think that's a perfect way to end it because when, when you look (laughs) at on that down note, you're not good. No, but when you, when you, because when you recognize that it brings us back to what we said at the very start is that to, to understand this doctrine, you have to understand how far you are from holy. That's right. And once you understand how far you are from holy, you understand how bad your sin is before a holy God. And then it reverts you to understand the doctrine of hell, but it reverts you to understand the doctrine of grace. And the fact that God, like you, you said it perfectly there. The miracle isn't that, um, that God sends, doesn't send everybody. The miracle isn't that God doesn't send everybody to hell. The miracle is that God's decided to save some people because right. all of us deserve hell. I'm no, I'm no worse. We made the joke about Hitler. We're no worse. We're no better than Hitler. We all deserve the same punishment as he does. The miracle is that God, in his sovereignty, has decided that for some bizarre reason, some of us are going to get grace. And how good God is that we've received that grace. Yes, amen. And I think 
yeah. Anyway, you could go on. You could go on about that, but I think that's a, that's a good place to end. Is uh, and I think that corresponds with um, Paul Tripp's uh, application point that this this should cause celebration um, because uh, you know, but for the grace of God, we'd all be heading in that direction. So. All right, um, we have uh, a few uh, exciting things in the next weeks to come, so uh, make sure you're here and make sure you're uh, listening to uh, the other podcasts. Uh, Until next week, we're the Rebels. Rebels.